Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Loopcast. After a bit of our summer break, it's really great to be back, and we have a whole bunch of fantastic topics and shows lined up to bring you, so welcome back. I'm glad to be back as well. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have Peter Singer on the show, and he's going to talk about, he has a new book coming out called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, and for those that want to pre-order it, it's coming out starting of October, but you can reserve your copy now on Amazon. But first of all, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast to discuss this fantastic book, Peter. Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for the kind words about the book. You're welcome. It's it's really a fantastic read, and um, I mean, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of it, but for people interested in new forms of information warfare, we could call it, it's really a great read. Just in case someone doesn't know who Peter is, he is a senior fellow at New America and a security strategist, and he's also the author of numerous multiple award-winning books, including his most recent book called Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war, and as I said, Like War is coming out in October, so if you find this topic interesting, please go out and get yourself one of the books. So, Peter, maybe just to discuss this topic, what was your inspiration to write this book? So, w- with my books, I'm always drawn to issues that I think are important, but um, either people aren't paying enough attention to them or they're not well understood. So, that's the thread that's uh, linked, you know, whether it was the earlier work on private military companies and their rise to uh, the issues of robotics to cybersecurity. And what Like War is about is the idea that essentially a generation back, researchers began to realize that people were starting to try to hack the new computer networks that we all depended on. And they called it cyber war. And we've spent the last generation basically kind of catching up to that and everything from our research to building entire new organizations around the threats there, such as cyber command. And this spark for like war was the idea that we were starting to see maybe it's twin, uh, not the hacking of the networks themselves, but the hacking of the ideas and people on the networks. And they were popping up in everything from uh, Russian operations in Ukraine to uh, ISIS using social media, not just to to arise and recruit, but having very real battlefield effect and um, things like the Battle of Mosul, to then seeing some of the very same tactics play out in our politics where you were seeing elections being influenced by information warfare techniques. And so it was just everything coming together and thinking that, hold it, we didn't well understand it, and we weren't paying attention to the scope and importance of it. So in the book, you discuss this idea of social media and the Internet as a weapon, and I would love for you to elaborate on that, because as the book title is, Like War, there's this massive amount of new technology, and it's been used in so many interesting ways, especially in the last couple of years, as it's used, you've just discussed. Well, it's it's not just a, a weapon. It's really to pull back. It's a battle space. Um, it's a new kind of battle space, and it's a strange thing that this battle space 
you know, started as a, um, you know, light and airy place. Um, one of the fun things the book does is goes back and looks at uh, Internet history. You know, we all use the Internet literally every day, and yet we really don't know uh, very well about its start. So, you know, for example, the arguably the very first social network uh, started in an email chain about uh, science fiction, appropriately enough. And then now we use it for, you know, everything from um, sharing our uh, summer vacation photos to learning the latest news. But also it's become a place that everything from politicians to extremist groups to uh, rock stars all try and turn that sharing of information into something to win their wars, whether their wars are actual wars or their wars are marketing wars. And then you get the strange mix that people are actually winning parts of their wars through marketing or win their elections is back and forth. And so the result is that we've got this world where um, attention uh, is power and not just power online, but um, the power to for example, become a new kind of president, uh, to become a new kind of terrorist group. You're talking about ISIS, become a new kind of rock star. And so those that understand the rules of like war have found ways to achieve real world power that previously was unimaginable. You just mentioned the rules of like war. So why don't we discuss those a bit? Sure. So a lot of these rules um, seem like uh, contradictions or they wouldn't have previously been possible, but uh, they're the result of this kind of world that we've entered into. So uh, one, for example, is the idea that secrets come now with a half-life or arguably there's no more secrets. And what this means is that you know, we have um, a change to not only uh, is you know, at least half the world online, but all these computers and the people behind them that are online have something that the original computers didn't have. Whether you're talking about the first two computers linked into ARPANET to uh, the computer that Mark Zuckerberg used to create FaceMash in his dorm room, they lack sensors. They lack the ability to gather information about the world beyond the computer. And then as Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, clearly part of the story, you have the rise of social media where now we're not just all personal collectors of information, but we also now share out that information. And so when you have this mass scale of sensors, this mass scale of sharing, uh, essentially it's very hard to keep anything a secret. Um, Sometimes that sharing is deliberate. It might be um, the 26,000 selfies that the average millennial takes. Um, It might be uh, something in the background of those selfies. Uh, I was part of a project that figured out details of a Chinese aircraft carrier based on um, uh, what was in the background of a photo. Uh, It might be um, information that's shared that's not uh, visual, but um, even psychological. Uh, We have the very first president to enter office with a digital trail behind them on social media. Um, And every future president, every future general, uh, every future, you know, you name it, will come with this digital trail. So it's that it might be technical information. We had CIA black sites um, outed by uh, the exercise apps revealing the outline of um, the basis perimeter. Um, we could go on and on, but the point is, is that you have this mass scale of collection and sharing that then can be mined to reveal what previously would have been secret. And it fundamentally changes everything from um, military operations, 
you can't pull off something like the D-Day invasion and, you know, keep an, an entire um, uh, invasion site and army location secret. You know, the Bin Laden raid shows that where um, it's supposed to be the most secretive operation of our lifetime. And it's live tweeted by a Pakistani cafe owner who's up late at night in a Badabad. Um, here's helicopters coming in and does the new natural thing. He goes online to Twitter to complain. Um, but the point is, you may, you know, rule number one, you may have no more secrets. However, rule number two, the truth can be buried underneath a sea of lies. And again, that's the essence of whether you're talking about Russian information warfare uh, in Ukraine to how it spilled over into um, impacting everything from uh, elections in um, Scandinavia uh, to Brexit, to the United States, to uh, most recently the Mexican election. And that truth being buried under a sea of lies is another part of one of these contradictions where um, we're all connected, we all have a voice, and yet governments have found new ways of censorship. And it might be new forms of um, monitoring our uh, every thoughts and moves to what Russia has basically done is figured out how to export censorship into another nation by spreading disinformation. Um, there's other uh, examples of this, of, you know, the idea of, as I mentioned, attention is power, and therefore there's rules to um, driving your message viral. And one of the fun things of the book is we used examples that ranged from um, TV reality stars to trolls to terrorists to Taylor Swift about what are these rules to driving your message viral and um, winning at what you're doing. And that's, again, what's kind of strange about all of this is that we can talk about um, very, uh, you know, um, classic military operational issues. Um, you know, we do deep dives into Battle of Mosul or military training exercises out at Fort Polk. But what you will see is reminiscent of what's happening um, in pop culture uh, or whatnot, and it's because each of those spaces is mining each other's for lessons. I was actually recently at a conference on terrorism and the use of new media and the internet, and that was a huge topic about how different groups are all learning from each other and the campaigns that maybe ISIS uses are now being employed by far-right groups and so forth. So why don't we discuss this a little bit about this learning curve or you could even call it like an instruction manual. One group does something and the next group learns from that or the next individual. So the, it's, it's both that, but I want to hit how it's even larger than that. You know, when um, ISIS arose and um, there was this fascination um, with the idea that it had a seventh century outlook on the world, but it was using 21st century technology. And it almost became this obsession. Uh, you know, for example, people used the um, descriptor slick uh, more than 5 million times uh, to describe, you know, this mystery of how is it so slick at its propaganda and its messaging. And the reason was it was basically made up of a bunch of people who had grown up in this world. They weren't doing anything all that novel. Uh, they were creating a hashtag to launch their offensive. Uh, they were um, setting up bots to drive their message viral. Uh, they were um, sharing personal messages that were then broadcast out to the world. 
what they were doing is what, you know, frankly, any millennial uh, would do. And yet on the military side, we were going, oh, my God, they're, they're so slick. How can they do this? Why are they so much better than us? So there's it's not just the learning from group to group, which is definitely going on, but it's also just learning to adapt to the changes that social media has brought to the world. Um, and that's where you see, you know, this first layer of learning is where you, you know, have a, um, be it an alt-right group or um, a political campaign that's looking at what Taylor Swift has done uh, to drive her message viral or to build an online army and then applying it to their own field. But then we have the second part of what you hit is, you know, essentially uh, people model after success. And so whether you're talking about um, ISIS as a model for uh, insurgent and terrorist groups moving forward, and we've definitively seen that where other groups are learning from them, copycatting them, even their direct adversaries in the game. Uh, you know, for example, the Taliban um, has been consciously copying certain things that ISIS has done. So you have that kind of direct learning, but it's also happening out in politics. You know, so the, the tricks of the trade that Donald Trump, um, you know, half of it was just his own uh, natural, um, he was born with a skill, the other half was underneath it, there was a very well thought out strategic campaign, it's actually a split, um, is one of the other things to deep dive into, there's a difference between Trump on Twitter and Trump campaign on Facebook, but the bottom line is that um, that model is something that both political campaigns outside the United States and Trump's own adversaries are going to adopt for the next election. So it's going to continue to grow. And then we have the other part of this of why it's all going to continue to grow is that we're really just at the start of all this. You know, it's a really uh, enormous historic deal that about half the world is online. That means about half the world is still to come. So these um, early days of like war, these battles playing out on our networks are only going to grow in both scale and importance as more and more people come online. That right there to me is a very important thing to think about because looking at how the online world and social media has influenced so much in our lives and the last handful of years, it's almost frightening to think that, as you said, half the world still is catching up. So it will be really interesting to see, even if, if that's in my lifetime, what that next phase will look like. Going back to the idea of like war, how should we think about the strategy of like war, especially looking at these different successful models that you've mentioned in the book and highlighted? So I want to hit that one point, though, of um, it playing out and um, sort of the idea of the, the scary side of it. Um, one of the concerns we should have is that we've already seen the impact of this on our own democracy and our own institutions. And again, those institutions might be anything from our media um, to our uh, respect for legal institutions, national security institutions, you name it. And we have a democracy that, you know, has 200 uh, plus um, years at this, has multiple centuries at this. We're feeling the force of it. Where it's hitting even more is in nations that don't have those kind of 
once strong institutions and where social media really truly is the internet. So you look at, for example, what's played out in Myanmar uh, or the Philippines is another example where, you know, Facebook literally is the internet. It's the portal for everyone. It's not the, if you look at the use and the saturation, um, it's the contained space for it. And we've seen the impact of these battles. And this is to get to the other part of your question, um, the strategy, uh, the idea of driving your message viral through likes and lies and adapting your message to this battle space and the underlying algorithms that run it, that has been crucial to everything from um, the rise to power of leaders uh, to fomenting genocide. And what we have to do is understand this space better and develop better responses to it. And when I say we, you know, that applies to everything from governments to the tech companies that now run these platforms that are, strangely enough, some of the most powerful actors in war and politics are actually a handful of, you know, basically tech geeks that are not all that interested in war and politics to you and I, you know, the citizens on these platforms, the consumers of these services. Considering like war, what would you consider a successful campaign coming from the side of someone that, whether it's, it's a group, a political campaign, a individual, what would a successful campaign look like for them in this internet social media world? <laughs> uh, sadly, one of the most successful would be the Russian operations um, against uh, first um, Ukraine and then broadening out uh, to include the United States. Uh, you know, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of, of propaganda um, and kind of where it layers over to information warfare. We tend to think of it as um, trying to make you to like me. Uh, it's a very kind of American approach. The Russian approach is actually instead to use it to um, further divide and create distrust uh, in institutions. Uh, and, and again, whether we're talking about the initial forays into um, Ukraine to um, the campaign to spread disinformation, a fog of disinformation into the 2016 election in the United States, an incredibly successful campaign, particularly when you compare it to the amount of spin that it took. I mean, it's, you know, literally a, a micro portion of one F-35. And yet, you know, in both situations, it altered history. Um, so very successful campaign. And again, back to your earlier question, that's why we are seeing not just uh, Russia uh, continue in that campaign. Um, and we've seen, you know, examples that run from it, you know, trying to layer on to everything from uh, NFL protests to uh, Charlottesville, you name it. But we've also seen other actors look at this and say, hold it, this was incredibly cheap and it worked. I could do that too. And those other actors are not just other nations. Uh, other governments, but also non-state actors. And those non-state actors range from uh, criminal groups to, I expect we'll also see this with like high net worth individuals that are, you know, single issue. I really just care about, insert topic here, um, tax policy, uh, whatever. Uh, again, these these tactics 
worked and therefore, like everything else, will be modeled after. So going back to something that you mentioned just a little bit ago, you've described different tactics. There's the tactic of getting the masses to really like you or love you and your message. And then the Russian example is, you know, creating dissent among actors. Um, And with that dissent, it it ends up being misinformation and, you know, lies, etc., etc. So how can we as the public and also analysts and people within the field that are tackling this every day, how do we deal with this idea of disinformation in this new sphere and its dissemination? How can we actually trust what's out there? I know that's a big topic that's been in the news with Facebook, etc. So I would like to hear your side of it. Sure. And like everything else, uh, there is no silver bullet solution. There is no one thing. And, and we go pretty deep into the what can we do uh, at the end of the book and break it down into what can government do? What can the companies do? What can we do? On the governmental side, uh, just like we had to do with the rise of you know what we might jokingly think of, but truly think of as traditional cyber threats, uh, we also have to do here with the like war side of things. Uh, and I should, as an aside, you know, the term like war is, is a play. It's a play on the idea of it like war uh, in terms of, you know, in warfare techniques playing out. But it's also um, a term, uh, a like war is when you have two competing tribes online, be they, you know, fans of um, Kanye West versus Taylor Swift trying to drive their message viral. And again, you know, using the very same tactics that ISIS was using to uh, win out in the early battles for Mosul. So on the governmental side, it needs to understand this as um, a national security issue, understand it as a strategic space, and start to develop um, organizations and strategies to respond. Uh, Some of these might be bringing back old organizations. During the Cold War, for example, we had something called the Active Measures Working Group. It was basically a, you know, now we would call it an interagency team that brought together everything from the intelligence community to the State Department to uh, the media side. And essentially, they tried to identify Soviet, so um, KGB disinformation, active measures campaigns that were trying to plant um, false stories in crucial Cold War battlegrounds and identify them and develop responses to them. Uh, back in the day, the crucial battlegrounds was what we called the Third World. And there were examples like, you know, um, planting false stories uh, on you know U.S. military activities to even conspiracy theories like, oh, uh, the United States created AIDS. Uh, it was part of an effort to try and sabotage the um, Olympic Games. Uh, but so it identified them and then developed responses to them. We eliminated that. We need something like that now. Uh, this um, moves to also uh, budget spend questions. We have the very strange phenomena that um, we have funded certain programs uh, within the State Department that have not actually spent their money to deal with things like Russian disinformation. Um, it might not just be in the State Department. It might be on other a- areas. We, again, have a very strange phenomena that the United States government has paid for Ukrainian students to learn how to identify disinformation online, but our own students are not taught that. Mm 
Okay, so we could go on and on about the governmental side. Then you get the private company side. The private company side is to recognize that um, they have created these spaces and they may not want to um, face up to it, but their creations have become not only connection points, but battlefields um, and battlefields that have been uh, used to target and abuse their customers. And that requires them to uh, develop measures in response. And you know, this is part of a larger debate that's going on right now. But one of the big things is to um, uh, do what to change the approach to what we think of as beta testing. Uh, previously, they've pushed out products without considering how bad guys might use and abuse them. And um, or their own customers might accidentally uh, use or abuse them in ways that are harmful. And, you know, that is fine um, to beta test to push something out and learn from the customer when it's an app for like a restaurant review. It's not when it's the nervous system of uh, not just our economy, but our politics writ large. Uh, Next issue, you and I. Um, part of this is learning how these platforms work that we use every single day. Uh, well over half the people that use social media don't understand its basics um, to uh, understanding how to better handle information itself. And, you know, this is, again, not all that new. There's the um, we use the idea of the uh, the blind men and the elephant. Uh, if you're only touching one part of the phenomena, you won't have the truth. The same for us if you're only staying within one lane. Uh, if you're not checking that information, uh, testing it against other sources of information, you're not going to have the truth. Maybe a different way of putting it uh, is um, it's a little bit akin to you know, the idea if you sit down at the poker table and you don't realize who's the mark, you're the mark. That's a good analogy. I like that. You mentioned a word, and that is identifying. And looking at all of this and, and looking at campaigns that we've seen or individuals, how can governments and analysts and, once again, the general public, how can we separate certain accounts that potentially are country-led campaigns, non-state actors, or those occurring naturally. Of course, sometimes it's very obvious, but then there are times where there's really a gray line where maybe it seems like it's just an individual, but it's actually a country-led campaign. Are there any clues that can help us with identifying the, the core of what this message and where it's coming from, really? Yeah, great question, and obviously a huge issue. And one of the more, um, how do I say it, interesting real world characters in the book who we interviewed uh, was a uh, former head of an intelligence agency, uh, of a U.S. intelligence agency. And he talked about how the biggest change in his lifetime was the complete flip in the value of open source intelligence that previously, you know, we looked for the good stuff. We looked for the gold nuggets in um, SIGINT and Signals Intercept and in HUMAN and what spies uh, were telling us. But that since the rise of social media, it's completely flipped. It's gone from, you know, he framed it as 90-10, um, uh, that now 90% of the good stuff was out there in OSINT, in open source intelligence. 
and that we needed to change to um, understand that. And um, that that meant we had to reorient the kind of collection and analysis, but also how we were uh, teasing things together. Uh, and he emphasizes, and like, now this is me speaking, you can actually see this phenomena playing out in how we, in essence, missed what was going on in the efforts to sabotage the, um, uh, sorry, the efforts to, to influence the 2016 election, uh, whether it was um, U.S. government to uh, the cybersecurity teams at the tech companies that we were speaking to, they were looking in the wrong place. They were looking for attempts to um, hack into the networks uh, and the like, as opposed to actually all playing out in the open. Uh, you know, so Facebook is looking for attempts to um, hack customer accounts, not hold it. What about just buying ads and pushing it out there? So this incredible value of open source intelligence means that we have to reorient. Now, uh, you've read the book, so you know the kicker on this. That person who uh, told us about this is General Michael Flynn, uh, who, after he is fired as um, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, has, in essence, a personal turn. And he becomes a source of massive amounts of conspiracy theory online pushing out um, all sorts of conspiracy theory, um, uh, you know, everything from Obama is not just a secret Muslim, but he's a jihadi, to um, hashtag spirit cooking, uh, which was, um, if you're not familiar with it, it was the uh, idea that there is a secret cabal of um, people in D.C., D.C. elite, uh, who have secret dinners where they consume human blood and semen. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about this in the book of, uh, he's, he's exactly right. And open source intelligence is, um, where the gold is now, but it's also where the pyrite is. It's also where, uh, the fake gold is. Um, and it's this back and forth. It's really determinative. But one of the things that we have to do in response to that is, um, uh, to make a pop culture reference, be like the North from Game of Thrones. You have a history online don't forget it that should follow people when people push out conspiracy theory be it um spirit cooking or um you know one of the other episodes we talk about is pizzagate that should follow people and when they are pushing something else out it should be remembered that they were the source of uh some of this um craziness um, and not just when it's craziness, it also might be when they are pushing out um, foreign government disinformation campaigns. That should follow them. It should not be forgotten. And we're really not going to be able to deal with the worst actors online uh, until we change the incentive structures. Because, you know, again, uh, the, the example of Pizzagate, I think, is a good illustration of this. Uh, some of the people that pushed out uh, Pizzagate have actually since been rewarded uh, with everything from um, greater jobs to the ultimate reward online, multiple retreats from the most powerful um, uh, voice in all of social media, the president of the United States himself. So we're not going to be able to deal with this problem until we tackle the underlying incentives behind it. On that point, how do we do that when a president is 
in a sense, um, promoting individuals that have been involved in things like Pizzagate. I mean, that's really hard when someone is in a position of great power. So how do we even deal with that? That's, that's the conundrum. You've just hit a, a uh, enormous conundrum, not just for you and I, but uh, a conundrum that's playing out within, you know, when you speak to anything from tech company executives to um, members of the U.S. military, to diplomats um, wrestling with uh, how to build international norms, uh, to lawyers, you name it. Everyone's wrestling with that question. Um, And, you know, again, that question is something that's um, not just a company policy question. uh, It's also a political question. Um, All I can say right now uh, is that um, it has to be challenged. Uh, whenever someone, be it a president to a journalist, pushes out the voice of not just a known conspiracy theorist, but someone who has a proven track record of multiple lies, you call them out on it. And you say, you know, this is what you are doing. You are part of the problem. Are you going to continue to be knowingly part of the problem? Are you going to be part of the solution? That is good advice. And and personally, I've been doing some research on individuals involved in terrorism, and some of them are related to September 11th. And it's amazing when you type in names, the the amount of crazy conspiracy theory topics on September 11th. I mean, it boggled my mind in the last couple of days, especially with the anniversary of September 11th coming up tomorrow. Um, But yeah, it's amazing the amount of disinformation, conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, Uh, messaging campaigns, you could even call it that, looking at it from the messenger's side. But it's amazing the amount of stuff that's out there. And of course, the internet is this free entity where anyone can really create a website or post something on Twitter or Facebook. And so it's just opened up this floodgate for lots of ideas. It's a war. It's a environment of a war on ideas almost. And and there's two important spin outs from that. The first is that may seem, um, you know, we may describe it as, as crazy or um, whatnot, whatever the conspiracy theory is. Um, the And it might not be something uh, as, you know, extreme as in, in terms of conspiracy theories uh, as, you know, whether it's they, they fake 9-11 to Pizzagate. Um, it might be uh, just a, a false news about the state of the economy, um, uh, whether uh, you know certain economic figures um, are historically good or not. Where they're you know they're definitively the fact is one way or another. But the point is, in a world where we increasingly get our information, our news online. It does become real, at least to those people who consume it. And that is an issue that's interesting because it connects not just the battle back and forth on uh, you know, things like Facebook or the like, but it's also part of um, measures of social control in other societies. Uh, one of the sections of the book looks at um, China and um, the you know, system there – of everything from web censorship to the social credit system that provides these kind of you know weird rewards that takes it all into a space that Orwell never could have imagined. But one of the examples is 
you literally don't have a means for finding out information related to Tiananmen Square, uh, the protests in 1989. So it's this measure of, of, of control and the like that's out there. But there's a second part of this is the importance of the algorithm, algorithms underneath this. So whether you're talking about um, the uh, Chinese um, web censorship system that simply does not allow you to search for certain words or phrases, they literally just disappear off the web. To you know your example of um, 9/11 conspiracy theory, part of its potency, part of its virality, is the fact that if you go searching for a, a fact, a high school um, student uh, who you know uh, wasn't alive when 9/11 happens is told to do a book report on it, goes uh, as they would not to an encyclopedia at the library, but goes to YouTube and hunts for it. Uh, finds a video, but then very quickly on the list of suggested um, ones on the side, very quickly it'll take them down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory. And, you know, try that out. You know, look at whether it's um, terrorist attacks to um, the Federal Reserve. Very quickly the basic algorithms will start taking you down um, pathways that uh, reward extremism, reward conspiracy theory because that is what someone is more likely to click on more likely to spend time on more likely to argue on so on that topic i want to kind of switch it to these handful of companies the social media internet companies that as you said earlier have a lot of power so the big question is you know the responsibility of these companies and are social media companies even incentivized to solve problems of misinformation and disinformation? Should we be putting restraints on them to make content um, disappear, like taking down content? Like, what are your thoughts on this? Because for me, it's it's a very tricky topic of how responsible should these companies that have platforms that are being used, you know. What is their responsibility, basically? Yeah, and it's a very controversial one, and it's one that's um, easy to get angry about when you, you know, now see and understand some of the things that played out on their networks. Um, and you can see the companies themselves are going through almost something equivalent to the stages of grief, uh, where you know originally they were in denial. Uh, that this even could have happened. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's um, famous response right after the uh, 2016 election that it's, you know, pretty crazy that um, anyone could have been uh, influenced by something that um, played out online and their physical behavior. And you're like, dude, that's what your entire company is based on. Uh, you know, like, that's literally the, the, the profit model of your company, advertisements that influence people to take a certain action. Um, and of course, actually, simultaneously to him saying that there was um, av- there was a section in Facebook uh, that was talking about um, it was fr- from the corporation talking about um, its impact 
on elections, that it was the best place actually to influence elections. But the point is, you know, you have this early kind of stage of denial um, and then grief and then bargaining. Um, you know, we, what if we do X? What if we do Y? Um, and now they're kind of, you know, they're in a different place and they've come to accept it and um, they're doing more on it. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful uh, historic what if. Uh, what if some of the measures that have been put in place, not just by Facebook, but by Twitter or Reddit, uh, Google, YouTube. And again, this is an, another important point is to remember that um, like war moves across platforms. But basically, you know, what if some of the things that they've put into place now in 2018 had been in place in, you know, 2014, uh, how would they have affected what ISIS was able to pull off or not? Or 2015, 2016, how would they have affected what Russia was able to pull off or not? But, you know, that's, those are one of those fun what ifs of history. But so basically, you know, what I'm getting at is there's a lot to be angry about. Um, and there are definitely certain things that they can and should do. Uh, and, um, we, you know, they range from, um, it might be policy changes. Uh, for example, there's a disconnect when you and I are talking right now and how um, evidence of foreign disinformation campaigns is handled. Some platforms, um, once they identify it, preserve it. Reddit is an example. So they lock down the accounts, but they save it so that researchers can study it. Um, frankly, you know, future students and classes might go to it and say, you know, here's an example of it. It's, it's kind of a uh, almost like a memorial to, to like war. Other platforms, Facebook, um, basically uh, arrive at the crime scene with a vacuum. Uh, and that means that what happened isn't preserved and it's very difficult to study. And it's also difficult in this kind of argument back and forth. And this brings you back to your point on 9-11. Did it even happen? Who did it? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, so for example, you have uh, certain addresses, um, handles that were used by Russian disinformation that have recently been re-released into the wild. And now they're being used by like a softball team in um, Texas. So to, if someone, you know, reads about it and then goes and hunts for it, they're like, this is a softball team. Well, that, that's what it is now, but it wasn't back in 2016. So that's an example of a policy change. It might require a policy change for government to step in to encourage them. A good illustration of this is um, what to do about bots, what to do about machine voices online. And again, circling back to what you and I were talking about, we're at the super early stages of it. The, the bots that we're dealing with right now are, you know, they're like the biplanes of World War I compared to, you know, the stealth fighters of today. They're, you know, pretty easy to figure out that they're bots, and yet they are incredibly influential in steering uh, online conversation one way or another. Uh, one third of the online conversation related to Brexit was steered by bots. Several years later, one third of the Mexican election uh, this year steered by bots. And again, the challenge here is that bots are used by everything from clear uh, bad guys, disinformation warriors, ISIS using it to drive their um, messages viral, but they're also used by uh, digital marketing for you know everything to jokes and the like. So there is a policy question um, that uh, you know, I jokingly think of it as the Blade Runner rule. Do we need to label 
a bot to say this is a machine. So we allow them to to operate online, but we identify them so that the humans interacting with them know this is not a real human. It's a false voice. That question is one that maybe we shouldn't rely on the companies to answer for themselves. That maybe there's bigger um, issues at play when it comes to you know everything from consumer uh, security to national security. Um, these are just some some of the illustrations that are playing out. But again, what I find so fascinating about it is that these questions are ones that are highly determinative. Again, they influence whether terrorist attacks happen or not. They influence whether um, groups like ISIS thrive or not. They determine the outcomes of elections or not. And yet they are decided right now by literally a handful of people who are in this role basically because they invented a really cool technology for a fundamentally different purpose. You know, whether you're talking about Zuckerberg, who's basically starts out creating a way for his fellow classmates at Harvard to vote on whether there are whether their um, dorm mates are hot or not. That's the origin of face mash. Or if you look at Twitter, you know, it's basically a messaging device. It's almost like a, um, you know, what we would think of as chat right now that goes on to, you know, help determine who becomes a president or not. And so they're in these very powerful roles. And I circle back to saying, you know, we can be upset, but actually we really shouldn't be all that upset because just like the Internet itself, the people in these positions are maturing along with it. They're starting to wrestle with all of this. And, you know, that's going to be this important force moving forward. So do you think, in your opinion, uh, looking at examples like in the UK where they've made restrictions on how long a group of Internet and social media companies are responsible for taking down, let's say, terrorist propaganda like ISIS. And so takedown times of content that's disseminated across multiple platforms has become much quicker, especially in the last year and a half or so. And it does, in a sense, slow down the group's messaging. But do you think the essence of it really puts a stop to it with a group like ISIS or a disinformation campaign? Or is it just slowing down the process and eventually these groups, these individuals, these states will find another way of getting the word out on the internet via social media, etc. So in this um, battle, it's important to you know, pull back and, and note that originally the company said, well, that's not even our job. Um, anything and um, any message, anyone should be allowed online. We should not, will not be in the position of deciding that. And, you know, as we, we, we go back in, in the book and explore, there's actually a long history of them deciding that. It's just this sort of slippery slope where they keep coming up with um, out clauses to that. You know, and originally it was uh, examples like um, uh, abuse of children online um, where everyone could agree this was bad. And most importantly, and this is the second part, it was to the company's interests 
to do something about it, that the early users of this platform uh, and um, the law might intervene if they didn't find a way to get this stuff off their network. And so they said, it's not our role. And then, well, actually, kind of in this case, it is our role. And then related to terrorism, a good example of this was, um, you know, we at one point in time, you had uh, terrorists, you know, open use of it. Uh, You look at, um, uh, for example, the uh, takeover of the shopping center in Kenya many years back, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's hold it. okay. actually, um, we don't want them displaying violence online. Uh, and that starts when you have the issues of, for example, YouTube beheading videos and the like. Okay, we'll do something about that. Then you have examples of terrorist propaganda. Uh, so you have um, Al-Alaki, you know, a prominent uh, propagandist who is allowed to uh, stay on YouTube because he's not actually showing any images of violence. He's just calling for violence. Then we change the policy and now we'll do something about it. We'll take it offline. Then we get this, well, is it just Al-Qaeda or is it terrorist groups writ large? Um, Is it extremists writ large? And this really comes to the fore uh, after the um, Charlottesville uh, where you have a neo-Nazi that kills a young woman and companies that had previously said, well, you know what? It's okay for them to use our platform as um, one of the uh, CEOs and founders of a company puts it. Nope, I changed my mind. Um, and he, he actually at least is you know self-aware enough to say, I shouldn't have this power, but I do. And so I'm not going to allow them to use my platform anymore. So what I'm getting at here is that, you know, first is that there's a long history of this, but very quickly where it um, falls into is tough political questions that the companies have to answer. And then every single time, They look to technology to try and answer these political questions for them. So this is playing out right now in direct answer to your question about, you know, sort of the taking content offline. Um, They're looking to artificial intelligence to automate that, to do it for them. But just like everything else in war, as Clausewitz would have explained to us, even though, you know, he couldn't even conceived of the Internet, there's going to be a back and forth. There's going to be a response. And so what groups do, whether it is ISIS or um, alt-right neo-Nazi trolls, is they figure out what is the policy, what is the mechanism, and then go just to the line of it. So if it is this kind of image that's not allowed, I'm going to tweak it to have that kind of image. If it's this particular word that's identified as not allowed, then I'll do this. And so you see a lot of kind of the veiling. And this is, you know, what's interesting about this, and again, its impact on our broader politics, is this is where Internet trolls both thrive and love. It's the the wink and the nod. Um, It's the uh, veiled reference to uh, something that's neo-Nazi, but I didn't. I didn't say anything that was uh, neo-Nazi or you know white supremacist. And in fact, you're the one who's being uh, racist by or, or trying to against freedom by coming after me at this. And you know that's a wonder. You know, it's the it's the sort of part of um, internet troll culture is to try and um, play with that line and then attack, attack, attack and then play the victim. 
And, you know, it's funny because I think what plays out in internet troll culture is one of the best ways of understanding the broader changes in American politics today. It seems like there's a very fine line in this whole narrative of what we would constitute free speech and then censorship. And that can be used actually to further gain support from your campaign, depending on how companies and governments respond to what you're saying. And that's, again, where the history matters. So when a group that, um, you know, for example, uh, has shown no interest in women's rights and has consistently been um, uh, hateful and attacking of women, then suddenly tries to uh, claim that it's being um, it's defending women's rights in some way, shape, or form. We can see this, you know, sort of of the the very similar tactics uh, used by alt right to go after everything from politicians to Hollywood directors. You know, don't just take what someone says on face value. Look at their history and weigh that in. Mm-hmm. A good, you know, and, and again, what we um, look at in the in the in the in the book is there are different um, issues of speech. There's free speech and there's censorship, but there's also um, what's known as dangerous speech. And dangerous speech is actually it's very interesting. It's a um, it's a concept that was created by uh, people from multiple different nations uh, around the world. So it's not you know linked to one culture. Uh, it's you know everything from people in Kenya to India to the United States. And basically, they tried to identify what are the particular forms of speech that um, spur mass violence. And so you know it wasn't just hate speech. It wasn't just um, something that's a mistruth. Those happen all over the place. It was, what are the forms of speech that spur mass violence? And they basically came down and found sort of five indicators of it. And we point to that as, you know, that's another place that the companies can turn to of saying, okay, my job, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to, to police every kind of mistruth that's out there. But I can identify when these five forms come together to create dangerous speech that spurs mass violence that I have an obligation to act on. So to slowly bring this conversation to an end, where do you see this new type of information, disinformation, this like war going in the coming years? I mean, you touched on it earlier, but what might the future look like for us in the internet social media sphere I think it's, you know, it's more, more, more. Uh, as we talked about, it's um, more people coming online. Uh, half the world is, is yet to come. Uh, more um, places that are covered by it. Uh, we, uh, you know, whether you are at the top of Mount Everest to in a uh, U.S. military nuclear um, missile bunker, uh, you can access uh, social media. At least that's the plan uh, that Shiji Command is working with. Um, so more people online um, in more places and um, using it for uh, more uses. The um, this is where the the model in China of um, you know the 
combinations that you see of you know everything from Amazon to Facebook uh, to Yelp kind of all brought together into the same platform. That's that's something that is completely normal and familiar to someone using the internet in China. It will become familiar to us. Um, but also more of these like war battles playing out. Uh, again, using the lessons of how to drive your message viral uh, through likes and maybe lies to achieve your goals. Um, as we talked about, the lessons are out there in the open, so more people are going to copy them. Um, these mores mean that they will also have more impact. Uh, the you know whether it was um, the Barack Obama. Uh, mobilizing um, using the internet to Donald Trump using it organizationally and um, you know really kind of to dominate uh, the battle against first his Republican rivals and then Hillary Clinton. Uh, this it will become more and more determinative, more and more impactful. Um, and uh, another more is more and more automated. We're just scratching the surface of what artificial intelligence can do, including in these spaces. So you will see more of these like war battles, but more involvement of artificial intelligence battling over your and my beliefs. Uh, so just more, more, more of this. But at the end of it, um, it still comes down to the lesson that we end the book on. Uh, you are what you share and what you share reveals who you truly are. And I think that is a perfect way to end the show. It gives a lot of food for thought, just like the book. So if you as a listener are interested in this topic, the book has a lot of thought provoking concepts and, and things that you, you read about what we've seen happening and, as we just said, you start thinking about the future. So it's a great read. I highly recommend it. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing the book with us, Peter. Oh, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.